Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this day, uh, a day in which um, you have made, a day in which uh, you have caused the sun to rise, a day in which you have called us here together as your people. Father, I pray that you would be at work in and through us. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart and mind be acceptable to you. And by your spirit, I pray that you would help each of us receive your word, the word that you have for us. Uh, I pray that as we look at the text, that it would cause our minds uh, to uh, light up with um, the glory of your king, Jesus Christ, that it would cause us to look into our own selves and do our own lives and to see where uh, we may fall prey to temptation. Father, we want uh, to make much of Christ, and yet we are, are uh, we're not able to do it on our own. We're weak and we're frail, and so we come to you now even asking that you would help us to hear. Open our hearts that we might receive your word Open our ears that we might listen to your word. Open our very uh, lives that we might be changed by it. So we ask that you would do this for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, for his glory and for our joy. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you. Yes, amen. All right, well, throughout the book of 1 Samuel, up to now, uh, we see that Israel has been searching for their king, a true king one who would protect their interests, one who would uphold justice for the weak and the vulnerable, one who would promote flourishing, uh, one who would provide safety and security, one who would go and fight their battles for them and protect them and defend them from, from any threats. In other words, they wanted a king who would bring them peace so they could live their lives. God had anointed Saul to be king, but Saul had proven to be a disappointment and I am going to do a little review because it's going to touch on what we're looking at today. And so he, Saul had proved to be a disappointment. He was the kind of king that the people had asked for, but he was not the kind of king that the people needed. He was not a man after, uh, after God's own heart. Saul had proven himself to be impatient, jealous, and more concerned with his own reputation than with listening to God and obeying God's voice. He was more concerned with what the people said about him and to him than what Samuel, the prophet, said to him. And there's this decisive moment in 1 Samuel 15 when uh, Saul had once again disobeyed God's clear instruction given through the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, 26, Samuel tells Saul, right, you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And so then as Samuel turned to leave Saul seized part of his robe and he tore it. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. It's in that very next chapter that, that uh, David is anointed by Samuel as the next king. Now we, we find out that uh, in this text and, and last week's text that we looked at, that Saul seems to know that David is going to be the next king. But it's never been explicitly said. Even so, he knows that the kingdom has been torn away from him. And as we've seen over these past weeks, David has become then the primary focus of Saul's jealousy. And it's caused uh, David to have to flee into the wilderness for his life. 
And then that word wilderness is used over and over in our passage. And uh, it should, it, it, to the first readers, it would have kind of perked their ears. Because the wilderness, uh, in the biblical sense, wilderness was seen as a place of suffering, a place of waiting on God. It was often the place uh, where you would find that things were not going as you expected that they would or that you think that they should. Right? David had been a shepherd boy serving in the fields, the youngest of Jesse's boys. And then all of a sudden he's anointed by Samuel uh, to be the next king of Israel. We shift then and he dramatically uh, slays Goliath in front of all of Israel's armies. He's then sent to serve under King Saul, and he eventually becomes King Saul's son-in-law. But now he's a fugitive on the run, running from his life, running for his life from a king, from his father-in-law, who wants to kill him without cause. The circumstances of David's life were not going as we might have expected that they would, or we think that they should. He's both physically and metaphorically in the wilderness. And we can find ourselves in wilderness as well, can't we? Right? We might not be a physical wilderness like the desert, but you may be feeling lost. You might be feeling unhappy, unconnected, or overwhelmed by life, or just unfulfilled. All of these are the feelings that we have when we're in the wilderness, when, when things are not the way that we think that they, we thought that they would be or that we think they should be. And as Christians, yes, we acknowledge that Jesus is the true king and the great, uh, the great uh, king that God has set over his people. We acknowledge that, that the king, he's the king that God has chosen, the king that God has anointed, and that God has set him apart and given him authority over all things. We know this and we read about this. Sometimes when we're in the midst of a wilderness, it can seem like dark clouds of doubt just seem to to cover up all of the brightness of those truths. In seasons of spiritual wilderness, it can seem like those dark clouds make us only, seem, make us only able to see what is uh, weighing on our shoulders. And when we're in the midst of that wilderness, we find that there are unique challenges and temptations. We might find ourselves asking, what is God really doing? Is he, is he doing anything? Does he even care about me? Does he care about my feelings? Does he care about how I feel or what I do? Is God even there? It's often in the midst of spiritual wilderness that we're most vulnerable to the temptation to look for a quick fix to relieve our suffering in ways that, that lead us outside of God's will. In our text this morning, we're going to see that David is confronted by three separate wilderness temptations. And with each temptation, he's confronted with a question, with questions like, will he seek to bring a quick end to his suffering right, by taking matters into his own hands? Or, or will he wait upon the Lord and trust in the wisdom of God's purposes and promises? And so from these, uh, this uh, narrative, it's actually three chapters that we're going to look at less read for us, the first one. But I hope to draw out from these three some of the truths that can help us when we face spiritual wilderness. So let's look at our passage. Well, actually, let me, let me give us the main point for this morning, and that is that 
God has anointed his chosen king. And therefore, and we can do, there's three things we're going to look at that we can do. And the first is that we can wait patiently on God to accomplish his purposes. So now let's look at our text. So the setting is that as the, as the chapter opens, we see, day, we see that Saul has returned from following the, the Philistines. And he receives a report that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So what does Saul do? He, he takes 3,000 of his chosen men to pursue David. These were no doubt uh, some of the best men of Saul's army. And at this point, we know that there are between 400 and 600 men with David. And the men who are with David, these are not necessarily the best soldiers. Right? First Samuel 22 2 tells us that of who this was, right? It was everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. Those are the ones who'd gathered to David. So he became commander over them. And at that point, and so that was in chapter 22, there were about 400 men. So think about that, right? Saul takes out 3,000. The numbers are like five to one that, that David is outnumbered. And so Saul and his men come upon a cave, right? They're looking for David and they come upon this cave and Saul goes in to relieve himself. He goes in to go to the bathroom, right? And if you're the king, you probably get the whole cave to yourself. But it just so happens that the cave just happens to be the same one that David and his men had been hiding in. They're just deeper inside the cave. And so imagine I imagine probably that they, they saw Saul coming. They probably crept deeper into the cave, hoping to not be seen. This is a very vulnerable spot for David. Right? He's backed into a corner with no escape. And so a shout from Saul would no doubt have brought overwhelming numbers against David and his men and could have destroyed them all. It's also a very vulnerable spot for Saul. Right? He's distracted. He's doing his business. So it would be easy enough to sneak up behind him and, and just kill the king. In fact, that's what one of the men, that's what the men thinks he, think he should do. Verse 4, behold, they say, uh, David, th this is the day in which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Now, if you do a search, you're not going to find that the Lord said that, right? at least not in what we have recorded in our Bibles. We don't find any record of the Lord speaking these words to David. But you can imagine their excitement. Maybe, maybe their interpretation is what's standing before them, right? This has got to be it, David. This is the opportunity. David creeps over, and he stealthily cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Imagine just for a moment how sharp his knife must have been to be able to cut off the corner of Saul's robe undetected. But even as he cuts Saul's robe, he is cut in his conscience. His conscience strikes him. Verses 5 say that afterward David's heart struck him because he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. 
Verse 7, we read in our, our English translation that uh, David persuaded his men with these words. But this is more than just a little gentle persuasion. Uh, the Hebrew word can actually be translated that David tore apart his men with these words. Uh, he, he had to keep them back. They wanted to take care of this once and for all. Because think about it. What, what would the death of Saul mean for his men? They could go home. right? They wouldn't be treated as outlaws anymore. And David, their guy, he would be king. Right? And these, hey, we were the ones who were with you the whole time in the wilderness. Imagine how the tables would be turned. And so I'm sure we are asking the question, well, we're not because we've already read the chapter, but was this a golden opportunity that David missed out on? Or was this a moment of temptation? Well, at some point between that moment that David saw King Saul and when he cut his robe, I said his conscience struck him, struck him. This was not God's plan to hand the kingship to David. Yeah, it was true that Saul was a wicked king, and we see in even just the previous chapters, he was a murderous king who deserved death himself. And it's true that, that David had been promised the kingdom. But the fact remained that Saul was the Lord's anointed what that means, and because that gets used throughout these chapters, what that means is that as the anointed king, he has been set apart by God. And what that meant to David was that to strike God's anointed would be to strike his hand against God. So David knew it was not his place to kill God's anointed. It was tempting to view this as an opportunity, uh, as a shortcut out of the wilderness. But David understood that it was merely a temptation. Jesus himself faced a similar temptation. When we think about what he faced in Matthew chapter 4, it says, 4 verse 8 says that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. There's a lot of questions that come up, right? Is this really something that the devil could offer Jesus? There's other questions, but we won't deal with them right now. But what's interesting is that what the devil offered Jesus was exactly what God had promised to Jesus. That's what he promised that he would give to Jesus. So the temptation was not that he would have authority over all things, over all these kingdoms. The real temptation was to take a shortcut to compromise his allegiance to his father and skip the slow and painful journey that would lead him to the cross. As one author put it, God's will must be achieved in God's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by means that God approves. And I think often when we face our own temptations, it's really about shortcuts. Right? When we feel like we don't, we're not getting what we deserve, right? we're tempted to take a shortcut to get what we think we do deserve. Right? If you think you deserve more money, right, you might be tempted to cheat on your taxes or your timesheet at work. If you're single, you want to be married, and you, you feel like you deserve to be in a romantic relationship. 
you might be tempted to compromise your dating standards and maybe date someone who maybe you know that you really shouldn't. If you think you deserve more respect, right, what are you going to do? You're going to be tempted to take credit for things you didn't do, to minimize or hide your own failures, to stretch the truth to exaggerate your accomplishments. You want to take a shortcut to get what you want. You want to compromise your morals. We can be tempted to sinfully compromise in an effort to take things into our own hands, to take the things that we think that we should have or that we thought we would have. Or, or we can patiently wait on God to accomplish his purposes. And when I say wait patiently, I don't, I don't simply mean inaction, right? When we say that someone is uh, waiting, it can mean inaction, but often, I think here what I mean is it's the kind of waiting that is an attentive readiness. It's the kind of waiting that David wrote about in Psalm 57 when he was uh, fleeing from Saul. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take a refuge. Till the storms of destructions pass by. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purposes for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who trample on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. See, David patiently waited for God to send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. After Saul rose up and left the cave to go on his way, David came out of the cave and shouted to him. He shouted to Saul and he bowed down. David held up in his hand piece of cloth that was proof of his innocence. He had an opportunity to kill Saul. He he had uh, encouragement to kill Saul. But David had practiced restraint. Verse 12, David said, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. I want to point out one thing here. What does he say? He says, May the Lord avenge me against you. So just hold, hold on to that, and we're going to deal with that then in, verse 20, in chapter 26. But with these words, Saul is cut to the heart, and he weeps. He says to David, you are more righteous than I am. For you've repaid me good, I've repaid you evil. You've declared this day how you've dealt with me well, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And Saul took the crown off of his head and he gave it. No, that didn't happen, right? We're going to see that Saul did not take the crown off of his head and give it to David. The tears that Saul wept here tears that it seems that he's going to take back. We find in Romans 12 uh, what Les wrote for us, what Paul wrote, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. 
If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's what David sought to do in the cave. As believers, we can patiently wait on the Lord because we know that he's working, right? He will pour out his mercy. He will bring justice. He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We look to Jesus as the anointed chosen king. And so we can wait patiently for God to accomplish his purposes. And the second point is that we can learn to trust godly counsel. We can learn, and I think I... I, I word it a little differently. So write down either one, right? But it's, it means the same thing. We, uh, that we learn to trust godly counsel that God sends through faithful believers. So we, we move from that first temptation to the second that we find in chapter 5. And we read in chapter 25 that, verse 1, that, that Samuel died. It says, now, that Samuel, now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And that's all. That's all we have about Samuel's death. For those who don't know, Samuel will speak again. But that's for, that's for a later week. Right? This isn't the last word we'll hear from Samuel, amazingly, but this is all we hear about is death. And I find it uh, surprising. Right? Samuel had faithfully served the Lord all his life, Right? We, we read in the beginning of the book that not one of his words fell to the ground. I mean, everything that he said came true uh, that he prophesied about. As a prophet of God, he had anointed Saul. He'd given him counsel. He'd anointed David and perhaps was David's greatest ally and counselor. And now he's gone. And there's silence. And we see then that David relocates to the wilderness of Paran where he is going to be confronted once again with another temptation. And now we're introduced, it's a very different kind of chapter. In verse um, 25, we're, we're introduced to a husband and wife. A very wealthy man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. What we know about Abigail is that she is, uh, she's wise and she's beautiful. And what we know about Nabal is that he was harsh, rude, and badly behaved. And that even his name, Nabal, meant fool. One commentator said, surely that had to have been a nickname, right? You don't name your kid fool. We don't know what kind of parents he had. So, but anyway, so what, what happens is that, that uh, David and his men are in the wilderness. And it's sheep shearing time. And David sends some of his young men to Nabal to ask for a gift. And according to the commentators, uh, it was actually customary in those times for shepherds to give gifts uh, to those uh, who had helped them over the previous year. And David and his men had surely helped Nabal's shepherds as they kept their sheep. In fact, it, the, the text tells us that they had treated the shepherds well. They'd never taken anything from them, and they'd actually been kind of like guards acting as a wall of protection around the shepherds both day and night. So you can imagine that this was probably a pretty prosperous year for Nabal, right? No thieves could get by David and his men. Probably wild animals couldn't get by. And so what does Nabal respond to David's request? How does he respond to David's request? Well, Nabal's response reveals 
that he has no gratitude. For Samuel 25.10, we read that Nabal answered David's servants. Who's David? Right? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men? Give it to men who come from I don't know where? Like, if Nabal had just refused David's request, it might have been understandable, right? There was never a, an agreement between them. But Nabal didn't just refuse his request. Nabal insults David and shows him contempt, right? Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Nobody in particular. He sounds like a runaway slave trying to scam me out of my food, my money, my water, my meat. Nabal shames David. So David immediately uh, rises to respond to Nabal's, to, to Nabal's insults. 25.13, Nabal, uh, David says to his men, every man strap on your sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. It's pretty clear that David had one thing in mind. He wanted Nabal to pay. But fortunately, David was not the only one to respond to Nabal's words. One of Nabal's servants went to Abigail. We read in verse 14 that one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out into the wilderness to greet our mas- uh, from the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were good to us, and we, we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything while, they were, while we were in the fields with them, as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us, both day and night, all the while we were keeping sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So imagine, right? He's so worthless that even the servants are willing to say that to his wife. Well, immediately, Abigail springs into action, hoping to prevent David from responding to her husband's insults. She gathers a large quantity of food and wine. And the text tells us that she laid, it, laid these gifts on donkeys and she sent them ahead of, of her, telling her servants, go before me, behold, I'll come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. And what do we see her do? Abigail hurried down from her donkey and she fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She knows who David is. She knows who he is and she knows that one day he will be the king of Israel. As one author wrote, her plea to David can be summarized like this. These are all the words. David, you can trust God to fight your battles. Taking matters into your own hands will only leave you with regret. That's pretty gutsy, right? David is coming to kill the whole household, and she's willing to go to him and say these words. 
Abigail shows great courage as she speaks to David. Her words reveal that she trusts in God. She has faith in God and she has wisdom in dealing with foolish men. She pleads for mercy and forgiveness and she reminds David that he is fighting the Lord's battles, not his own. The Lord is his protector and his defender. He, he doesn't need to defend his own honor. I mean, think about when your honor is, uh, is wronged, when you're insulted. What is your temptation, right? Like David, some of us, we just want to go and we just want to get back at the person, right? We're, we might be tempted to seek vengeance if somebody wrongs you, right? Think about this. If an employee's belittled by her boss, right, she might respond by undercutting his authority. If someone you know criticizes you, you might be tempted to go and gossip about them and try and ruin their reputation. But seeking vengeance for ourselves reveals our lack of faith. It shows that we don't trust God to fight our own battles. Remember Romans 12, 14? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And then verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David understood that he wasn't supposed to seek vengeance after God's anointed, after Saul, but, but Nabal? That kind of threw him for a loop, I think. But what does he do? He, he responds by blessing Abigail and thanking her for all that she's done. David was ready to bring the sword of justice down on the fool Nabal. See, the thing is that everybody has lapses in faith, right? Everybody except our Savior, our great King Jesus. Everybody since Adam all the way up, every believer in God has lapses of faith. And really, it's the reason why God places us in community, community of believers. David needed Abigail to remind him that God is sovereign, that he's good, that he's loving, and that life ultimately isn't about him, David, and his reputation. As I said, David commends Abigail and credits her for being the voice of God, restraining him from sinning. And we too, we need to be willing to listen to the wisdom that God sends into our lives through godly, the godly counsel of our brothers and sisters, those who know us and love us, who can look into our lives. We should pray for wisdom and guidance, but we should also recognize that God often sends the response through the wise words of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? And because they know us, they can see, help us see our blind spots. Because they, uh, because they love us, we can know that they're seeking to help us to reflect the heart of God and that, uh, that they are seeking our good. At the same time, we also need to be humble enough and brave enough to encourage and exhort others, one another, to trust in God, especially, particularly when we see a brother or sister walking down a sinful path. It has been observed many times. Sadly, Christians make terrible decisions. Almost always, when they make terrible decisions, almost always they do so 
in isolation apart from good counsel. Well, David did receive vengeance. He saw God do his work. It was not long. Uh, in fact, uh, Abigail told Nabal, he couldn't tell him, she couldn't tell him that night because he was drunk, said that he was holding the feast of a king. Apparently he hadn't even missed all that his wife Abigail had taken to David and his men. But when he sobered up in the morning, she told him all that she had done. And the text tells us that his heart died within him. He became a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And David attributed that to the Lord bringing vengeance. David learned and was strengthened in his faith that, that he could trust himself to the God who delivers true justice. And so we need to rely upon one another. Right? We need to patiently wait on God to accomplish his purposes, and we need uh, to learn to, to trust godly counsel from one another that he sends through faithful believers. As we look, look at then the last uh, chapter, chapter 26, we see that the third thing that we can do as those who uh, trust in God as uh, Christ as the anointed king is to hope in God's promise of deliverance. And that's our third thing I want to drop from that last chapter. Now, if you've read through these three chapters, which if you haven't, I would encourage you to do that uh, today. But if you've read through the three chapters, you see that 24 and 26 they're really similar. They're really similar. In fact, David is confronted with this third temptation in 26, and it begins with what? Saul has received a report uh, of David's location in the wilderness. So what does Saul do? He takes 3,000 men to pursue David, 3,000 of his chosen men. But this time, David sees Saul coming, and he scouts out where they're camped. And at night, David and Abishai go into the camp, they find Saul. He, he's at the very center of the camp, where, you know, which would supposedly be the safest place for a king to sleep. <clears throat> and he's asleep with all of his soldiers and bodyguards surrounding him. But the text tells us that the Lord has caused a deep sleep to fall upon the whole camp. And so David and Abishai just walk right in. There's Saul. If he was defenseless in the cave, he's really defenseless now. He's really vulnerable. His spear is by his head. And we read in verse 8 that Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Sounds familiar. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. Once again, David is faced with a decision. It's a temptation. God has placed David in a place of power over Saul. What will he do? Right? One strike from Saul, one strike in Saul's life would have ended, and the exile, once again, it would be over. David could be king. And this time, David wouldn't even need to perform the act himself. Right? He had Abishai. He could do it. He could keep his hands free of Saul's blood. And the irony would be really rich because Saul had tried more than once to pin David to the wall with his own spear. Maybe that very spear. 
But David said to Abishai in verse, in verse 8, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let's go. What we see in David's words is that his, his growing trust in the Lord's purposes and plans, even as he's suffering in the wilderness, David is showing that he will patiently wait on God to fulfill the promises that he's made. That he would trust in God to achieve his will in his way. David would trust that the end that God ordained would be reached by the means that God approves. David and uh, they, they exit the camp, they go up a fair distance, and they shout out. David once again reveals himself, and Saul knows it's him. But listen to David's words in verse 24. He says, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all my tribulation. Right? We might have expected David to say, As your life was precious in my sight, may my life be precious in your sight. That kind of makes sense. But David places himself under God's eyes and in God's hands. Think about when, when we want to be avenged, right? When we, we want to get out of the wilderness, what do we want? We want not just to be made right in God's eyes. We want to be made right in everybody else's eyes too. But that's not where David is looking at. That's not where he's trusting. It was the same path that our Savior walked and it's the same path that he calls us to walk in. We see in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was the innocent king. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, we worship and we follow a king who is worthy of our praise, adoration, obedience, and example. Right? He calls us to and trust ourselves to God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving. But not only that, he doesn't just say this is what we should do. He's made it possible for us to follow in his steps because it's by his wounds that our wounds are healed. He has forgiven our sins. and He's given us new life. So we can trust him. Right? This is the king that we trust, that we place our lives in, knowing that he will indeed bring about his promised deliverance to us. 
It's like David. David didn't know when Saul's life would end. We don't know exactly when God will deliver us out of whatever wilderness we might be suffering in. It might be soon. It might be a long time. It might be when we see him face to face. But we can know that there are no shortcuts that are worth taking if those shortcuts lead us outside of God's wisdom and God's will for our lives. See, God is not only giving us new life, but through all that we go through, he's making us like his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that we hold on to, that no wilderness is wasted, no time is wasted. In God's economy, our suffering is not wasted. And so as Christians, we worship and we follow, we serve and we obey. Jesus is our king. He is the true and great king that God has set over his people. He's the king that God has anointed, that God has set apart and given authority over all things. And so, because of that, we can wait patiently on God to accomplish his purposes in our lives and in the lives of our community. We can learn to trust godly counsel that God sends to us through faithful believers, those who know us and love us. And we can hope in God's promised deliverance, a deliverance that will come because he is faithful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that Christ has given us on the cross. That because of his faithfulness, Father, that we have life. And so I pray, Father, that these passages would help us once again to see ourselves and our own temptations that we face. To help to see the wilderness that, that you may have us in either now or that you may bring us through in a short time. We don't know, Father. But help us to trust you and to follow you through that wilderness not seeking shortcuts that would uh, be found through sin, escape, but ones that lead us by your loving hand to be made into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.